Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Caroline Rose. Caroline is a senior analyst and head of the Power Vacuums program in the Human Security Unit at the New Lines Institute in Washington, D.C. Our conversation today is a look at how the now year-old Ukraine war is impacting the Middle East and North Africa. Caroline, great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much, Bill, for having me back on. It's great to be back. Now, it's just a little over a year ago that Vladimir Putin launched his war in Ukraine. The Middle East and especially the Gulf states have played a, a careful balancing act whilst benefiting hugely from the massive increase in energy prices. Do you think they've been able to pull that balancing act off or has it come with some costs and some consequences? I think to a degree they've been able to pull this balancing act off particularly as the United States has shifted its attention span from the Middle East uh, and the likelihood of eventual U.S. partial or full withdrawal in some areas of the Middle East is becoming more and more real. Uh, so while certainly they've, they've angered and they've frustrated the Biden administration with uh, their, their policies regarding the energy sector and really kind of declaring this, this neutral statement in the war in Ukraine, uh, despite some of these frustrations and, and, and tense relations with the United States, I think they've been able to pull this off. And uh, the Biden administration, given there's so many different balls in the air, uh, they haven't really been able to enforce and, and, and impose any punitive action against many of these states. So I think that they've been able to get off with this scotch-free. Mm, yeah, interesting. And you you mentioned some of those things, the sanctions, for example. I mean, Dubai is famous for sanctions busting anyway, and it's pretty clear that uh, there's really no attempt from Washington to, to put any kind of pressure on Dubai or really any of the other Gulf states to uh, clamp down in any effective way on sanctions. Absolutely. And I think it's put Washington in a very tricky position just given that uh, the Biden administration came into office with so many promises to respect the human rights agenda, particularly in the Gulf. And so that in itself has also thrown I, I, sort of a wrench into, uh, you know, trying to open and, and gauge positive relations with a lot of these Gulf countries and create incentives to back off of this neutral policy which is why we've seen kind of this this uh, pendulum swing between punitive action, tense relations, and diplomatic openings. So it's been a kind of a confusing policy, but uh, I kind of empathize with the Biden administration given this tricky position that they're in. You say confusing policy and and and, and some empathy, but surely Biden, when he came in, had some pretty clear ideas about how he was going to deal with, for example, human rights abuses in the Gulf, particularly with the killing of Jamal Hashoji. I think that now the war in Ukraine and all of this instability in the energy sector, that has kind of convoluted that strategy and that agenda. And on top of that, that's been exacerbated by a very clear pivot and um, move to de-emphasize the Middle East overall on the administration's foreign policy agenda. Yeah, and I think that message has gotten through loud and clear to the Saudis and the Emiratis and, and other Gulf states. And they're they're tilting towards uh, China and, and, and to Russia. 
in response to that. They really are trying to pursue and, and counterbalance their relationship with the United States and diversify these foreign policy relations with China, Russia, and a number of other countries. Yeah. Now, when uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis look at Vladimir Putin, who do they see? Is it a useful ally or a failed warrior? I think that they they look at Putin and, and Russia as a whole with kind of this lens of real politique. I don't think that they see Russia and Putin with rose-colored glasses. Uh, I, I think that they've seen many failures in Russia's operational and tactical capacity in Ukraine. I think that they understand that Russia, in some cases, overestimated their capabilities there. However, I do think that they see this moment as kind of a window of opportunity to diversify these relations and understand that, you know, Russia is playing the long game in Ukraine. Uh, while they've withdrawn from a number of areas and they've experienced some pretty incredible operational failures there, they're likely going to try and chip away at Ukraine and, you know, multiple times in the future. And so for the Saudis, for the Emiratis, and for a number of their other Gulf uh, neighbors, I think that they see Russia as a long-term power that they're going to have to contend with. They're going to have to, to coordinate with Russia as a member of OPEC+, and of course, uh, coordinate with Russia on large-scale foreign policy matters. I don't necessarily think that this is a kind of one-dimensional shift entirely towards Russia. I think that they're really trying to counterbalance the United States and even China with pursuing and exploring opportunities with Russia at this time. Mm. But let's look at a country that you've done a lot of work on, uh, Caroline, Syria. Has Bashar al-Assad benefited from the war in Ukraine? And if so, in what ways? I would say I would say yes and no. Uh, certainly the fact that Ukraine has absorbed so much attention from foreign ministries. I mean, if you look at, you know, the EU, if you look at the U.S. Department of State, the efforts to support the Ukrainian armed forces and Ukrainian civilians, it sucked up a lot of time, attention and money um, within these these governmental structures. And because of that, Syria, as a result, has received a lot less attention and has been uh, kind of deprioritized, unfortunately, despite the continued humanitarian devastation and the fact that the Assad regime has continued to consolidate more territory. That being said, Russia, while they've maintained their forces in Syria, they're not leaving anytime soon, they have adjusted their force posture there. And because Ukraine is a priority for them and the top priority for their foreign policy and defense agenda, uh, they have shifted their personnel, particularly in southern Syria. This has led to a breakdown of this what's called a post-2018 security arrangement in the south, particularly in Dara and, and in Sueda. And um, Russia has replaced a lot of their infantry forces with military police patrol units which has allowed the regime to really push and contend uh, some of these contested territories there. So that's been an advantage. The disadvantage for the regime, of course, is the fact that they are not really the top foreign policy and defense priority for Russia. 
while they shouldn't expect Russia to leave anytime soon, I think that for the Assad regime, they're going to have to lobby Moscow for greater attention and for continued security assistance. And then finally, I would say it has allowed the Assad regime to operate very much under the radar and try and consolidate further gains while the West and the international community is very much focused on Ukraine. Yeah, and certainly on the diplomatic front, we've seen that with uh, the Arab League moving ever closer and the Emiratis and indeed the Saudis, uh, you know, moving closer to Assad. So he seems to me to be moving quite effectively on, on, a, on at least a couple of fronts. We saw this happening in, in the last two to three years. But I would say we've seen the dam sort of break after the very devastating earthquake that uh, affected both uh, northern Syria and also Turkey. And I would say the earthquake has been utilized as an opportunity through and through for the Assad regime to try and push normalization efforts and also politicize uh, a lot of the wording and rhetoric around sanctions. So, uh, you know, we're really starting to see a flood of normalization efforts. For example, the Jordanians, they, after a long pause in normalization efforts, they sent a minister to Damascus for discussions. The Emiratis are, um, you know, really doubling down on normalization efforts. So are the Egyptians. And then recently, and this is a big change in policy, the Turks, we've seen... um, Erdogan also changed his rhetoric on this. So I would say that the United States and its and its partners, they didn't recognize that this would happen so fast. And I think that they're a bit behind the post in trying to turn the tide of this. Uh, but the earthquake, no doubt, introduced this opportunity for the for the regime. Mm. And what about the Saudis? Am I right to think the Saudis are, are moving closer to Assad now as well? I think the Saudis, just like before, they were waiting to see what sort of reward could be achieved, particularly watching the process between Syria and the Emiratis and really defining, okay, in, you know, the, in, in the post-reconstruction or the post-war reconstruction landscape, what could be gained by Gulf countries? I think that Saudi, while they're pursuing this behind closed doors, they're going to be one of the last countries to normalize as they're going to be watching others' normalization process and approach monk processes very closely to see what they can exactly get out of it and what are the risks of pursuing that normalization process. Okay, now let's let's talk about Mr. Prigozhin and his bloody band of Wagner mercenaries, very busy in Ukraine, still busy in Sudan and Libya and elsewhere in the MENA region. In fact, some analyses have proposed that they're busier than before in, in throughout the Middle East, but protect, particularly in, in Africa. You know, while they've used Sudan as a base of the for these operations, they have uh, maintained either high or low profiles in Mali, the Central African Republic, uh, while, of course, reducing their presence in Libya and potentially in Syria, all, of course, while balancing this juggling act in Ukraine and contesting even Russian army forces um, in, in, in Ukraine as well. So it's very notable that Wagner has been using Africa as leverage um, in the international community, but also, of course, within Russia, within their own political structure as well. And uh, we've seen a real big boost in Wagner um, personnel and activity. 
I mean, his is an extraordinary story, isn't it? A guy was, as I recall, selling hot dogs outside the Kremlin, becoming, you know, this uh, this mastermind, this this kind of warlord, this this arms dealer, this uh, this man who was opening up gold mines and various other mines in Africa and with this band of mercenaries. He was called um, Putin's chef at one point, I believe. Uh, very interesting background and climb into power. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not an expert on, you know, the internal politics of Russia, but from what I know, you know, he has, you know, butted heads and has locked horns with a number of high-level Kremlin officials, particularly those within uh, Russia's military circle. And this has introduced a, a huge, uh, you know, struggle and, and uh, competition within the Kremlin over control and the direction of Russia's defense policy. And it really is incredible to watch and to, to, to kind of see his trajectory as now the head of the Wagner Group. Yeah, it is. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, too, that as you noted uh, his successes, Prigozhin's successes in, in North Africa and, and in uh, Sahal, uh, do you think he could use that to I don't know, challenge Putin at some point? Because, you know, some are saying that Putin is is losing a, a fair degree of influence as this war drags on and as the promised great military uh, adventure continues to look like a, a big failure. I think it's possible. What we've seen so far, however, is that he's challenged a number of military leaders that are pursuing these policies in Ukraine and, and are, are commanding these, these units. He's accused them of incompetence, um, you know, lack of resourcing, and uh, even for some treason, depriving troops of ammunition and logistical support. And so with all of these kind of operational inefficiencies we've seen with Russian troops, he's really tried to utilize that as an opportunity to show that Wagner is kind of a superior fighting force and try and uh, leverage power against a lot of these military commanders. And this has put Putin in a very difficult spot, uh, given the fact that he, of course, would like to stand behind Russian forces and, and show that they are superior fighting forces, for, fighting force. And we're starting to see this kind of classic competition between some of these more commando specialized fighting forces and the larger um, military machine of, of, of Russia. And this is something that I think that he has exploited completely as the head of Wagner forces. Whether he's going to challenge Putin himself, I think that's to be seen. Um, and I think this has been no doubt a headache for, for Putin. But I, I think that right now it's he seems to be channeling this and trying to build power against uh, Russia's top military commanders. It'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. Uh, but, but finally, Caroline, let me ask you this. Should we assume the conflict will remain pretty much frozen? And if it does, what are the implications then for the Middle East? Certainly, I see the conflict in Ukraine remaining frozen, particularly uh, in, in, in the country's east, where a lot of these territories are contested. Uh, and again, despite the fact that Ukraine is receiving more advanced weapon systems and the resolve and commitment from the West to support Ukraine has never been this high, I think that we are going to see a frozen conflict for, for the next few decades, given the fact that Russia is so resolute in trying to chip away 
territory by territory, province by province, Ukrainian territorial sovereignty and integrity. And I think that they will be back. They will relaunch offensives, whether large or small, to try and chip away at Ukraine and push this buffer zone further, further west. And because of that, I think that the Middle East will continue to uh, you know, rank further lower on the United States and its partners' foreign policy and defense agendas. And because of that, uh, it will expose governance gaps, security gaps, and um, some real power vacuums in, in the Middle East. And while, you know, forces might remain and personnel might remain in, in, in the region, I think that it is going to make the case and exacerbate uh, partial withdrawal, which I think is going to be very important when we look at how the security landscape will unfold in the region. So um, when you say withdrawal, are you talking military withdrawal? Because uh, we've had the diplomatic withdrawal, some people would say, uh, already in play. Certainly. I, I, yeah, when I say withdrawal, I think uh, military withdrawal, certainly, but also, of course, the allocation of resources for programs um, and uh, humanitarian support, political support, etc. Uh, you know, again, I think that overall attention to this region is going to continue to wane unless something drastic and sudden happens, such as, you know, for example, the resurgence of ISIS or something like that. Did I hear you correctly? You said decades and decades of a frozen war? I, I could see Ukraine becoming a, a frozen conflict for, for over a decade. Absolutely. Wow. That yeah. Is, yeah. And, and in terms of America, the extent to which America is prepared to sink more and more weapons into that war, I guess that's that's a question that will be perhaps partially resolved when we have the next presidential election, although who knows? Yeah. I mean, if you look at Crimea, right, you know, this has been something that Russia has made a top priority in trying to, as I as I mentioned, chip away at Ukrainian territorial sovereignty. And so I think that this is a big concerted effort. And if we look at the long game in play, I think that absolutely we could see this span over over a decade. And it, it is going to have to, it's going to require long-term attention and care from Ukraine's partners. And, you know, we, we're already starting to witness a bit of war wariness um, among a number of different publics. Uh, and, you know, again, to properly supply Ukrainian forces and support Ukrainian territorial sovereignty, we're going to need some patience. And we're going to have to really think about the long game here. Because, as you say, Putin does play a long game and he's played it quite well over over a couple of decades. Now, I, I did say that was the final question, but I am going to ask you one more uh, just before I let you go, you and your colleagues at New Lines Institute have done stellar work on Captagon and the Assad family's trafficking of the drug. Any inroads in terms of uh, shutting down the Assad family drug business? Uh, yeah, well, thank you. Uh, we've actually had, uh, we've witnessed kind of a big year in terms of acknowledging the Captagon trade's expansion in the region and also the security implications and health implications of this trade for, for the region, particularly Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, uh, and the Gulf. And this certainly, I, I think that we've seen some policy recommendations and policy action pursued by a number of countries, particularly in the United States. The U.S. Congress, they passed a recent legislative effort 
to create an interagency strategy that uh, counters the Assad regime's use of the captagon trade for alternative revenue. Um, that was HR 6265. It was passed um, as an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. That was passed in December of last year, December 2022. And likely we're going to see the result of that interagency strategy with a report and an investigation later um, in early summer in June. So that's definitely a development and an inroad that has been made in countering the Assad regime's use of the Captagon trade. And I also think that there have been a number of really excellent investigations and um, uh, research and reports that have been conducted by a number of different media organizations and individual researchers that have shown how the regime is utilizing the trade and how the trade is changing and how they're adapting to some of these new constraints in the region. Mm, it is such an interesting story uh, because it pulls in Hezbollah, uh, of course, the Saudis must be concerned about the Capticon trade. I mean, uh, that's something that is clearly an issue and a problem and increasing a problem for young Gulfies who partake of this particular drug. Absolutely. It's it's become a huge issue when approaching consumption and demand. You know, they continue to seize millions of pills, uh, you know, per month, sometimes even daily, depending on which port you're looking at. And we've also seen a number, a spike in arrests inside of Saudi Arabia with dealers and smugglers that are operating inside. And, and again, you know, there hasn't really been any sort of way or policy solution to try and reduce this demand and address this problem inside of Saudi Arabia. And so without a doubt, the Assad regime and their partners they're, they're really targeting Saudi Arabia and their Gulf neighbors as this primary destination market for this trade. It's interesting. They might want to put a little bit of pressure on Assad as they're moving close to him to uh, to do something about that, though. I, I wouldn't hold my breath on that. And I think I think some countries, interestingly, are seeing Captagon as a potential avenue for communication and perhaps one of the first agenda items to try and convince the Assad regime to reduce their shipments and to try and reduce the supply of Captagon. But it just won't work because for the regime, that is a primary business model. And uh, it's such an easy way and a cheap way to generate revenue. And while, you know, for example, their ports may not necessarily receive high volumes of Captagon, uh, you know, we'll still see a spike in overland smuggling. So, you know, if it's not going to be the Assad regime, they might also offload this business to a number of their non-state partners, such as Iran-aligned militias, Hezbollah. So I think it's kind of a fool's errand to believe and to pursue normalization efforts with the regime, thinking that this would somehow reduce the volume of the Captagon trade in the Gulf. Mm, well, that is, a, that is a story that I know you are, are very well attuned to, and I look forward to further investigations from you and, and New Lines on it. And uh, I thank you very much for today's conversation. Of course, it was an absolute pleasure, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Caroline Rose, Senior Analyst and Head of the Power Vacuums Program at Washington's New Lines Institute. Since we launched our podcast less than three years ago, it's been listened to 125,000 times in countries right around the world. So a uh, big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying our podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and writers, contributors like Caroline. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening, from independent sources. Thank you.